0: Let us now bow our heads together in another time of prayer. We pray to you, Father, our great covenant God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray to you, Father, through Jesus Christ, our mediator by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that this evening you would give us all the focus we need to be attentive to your word, that we might be encouraged and rebuked and challenged by your great and holy word. Would your powerful, living, and active word pierce our hearts tonight? And would your spirit work through all these words as your servant gives them, Lord? I ask that I would be faithful to your words and preserve what is taught in your scriptures. Would you help us all to understand your word tonight and give us eyes to see the greatness of your love and mercy shown forth in Jesus Christ? And would we all have ears to hear As we contemplate your heavenly plan of salvation, lead us now to your throne of grace by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight I'll be reading from John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 21, but I'll begin our reading a little bit earlier. So if you would please turn to John chapter 2, verse 23. John chapter 2, verse 23. John chapter two, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. How can these things be? And now our passage for tonight. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thus far has been the reading of God's holy and inspired word. I want you to imagine with me that you're hiking in the backcountry, perhaps the wilderness of San Diego here, and you go on this trail and you see signs that say, beware of rattlesnakes. You ignore the signs because as you're going into the wilderness, your purpose there is to practice some hidden sin, some sin that you harbor in your heart that you don't want others to know about, something you wanna discreetly do away on your own without being seen. So in fact, let's imagine you went at night, you're in the darkness and you're practicing this sin and you're bitten by one of those rattlesnakes that you were warned about and the venom is coursing through your veins, and you lay there dying, and there's nothing you can do. You can hardly move, you can't call for help, and no one knows that you're out there. You're facing certain death. But one person did know where you'd gone, and they actually knew what you were up to. It was your enemy, someone you hate. But he actually loves you, even though you hate him. And at great cost to himself, he charters a rescue mission and a helicopter to go and seek the, you as you're lost out in the wilderness in the dark. As you lay there dying, you see this helicopter coming from above, light shining down from above, and the rescuer repels down on a rope. And you recognize that the person whom you hate has sent his son as your rescuer, and he's Holding out an antidote to the venom in your veins. Yet, as the light shines down upon you, you realize it's going to expose the sin that you went out to practice. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you harbor in your heart that you don't want others to see, they're going to know. The rescuer is going to know. The light will expose it all. So, instead of accepting the antidote and letting This rescuer carry you off. You choose with your very last ounce of strength, your last breath, to roll away from the light into the darkness and die in the cold alone, all because you didn't want your sin to be exposed. I want you to consider this story as we look at God's rescue plan that's laid out for us in John 3 tonight. John 3 begins with Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And our passage begins with an indictment from Jesus to Nicodemus. Indicting him means he's bringing accusations against him. And then we see Jesus explains God's God's purposes in salvation, his plan, to Nicodemus. He tells him the purpose of this plan. What's the end goal? He also tells him, what motivated God to send this rescue mission in the first place. And then the very end of our passage shows us the two ways that people can respond to this rescue plan sent from above. So as I said, John 3 begins with Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the dark. That's interesting, considering the themes of light and darkness in John. And Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. But Jesus responds as though Nicodemus had just asked a question. Perhaps it was the question in Nicodemus' heart or the one he should have been asking. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he's telling Nicodemus right off the bat, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And Nicodemus is not getting this. He doesn't understand the precondition for even seeing, and Jesus also says, for entering the kingdom. Nicodemus doesn't understand the precondition, the very first step, and he says, how can this be? How can this be? And then in verse nine, we get the final, how can these things be? Nicodemus is perhaps asking a broader question about how does all this work? How does even the plan of salvation work if he didn't understand even the first step? And Jesus answers him in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? That's where the indictment of Nicodemus begins. He's telling him, these are the accusations brought against him, you don't understand. And you're the teacher of Israel. He's described as a ruler of Israel, a Pharisee. He sits on the Sanhedrin. He's supposed to know about God's kingdom. He's supposed to know about God's plan. He's supposed to know the scriptures well. And he says, you're supposed to be the teacher and you don't even get it, that's the first indictment. He doesn't understand. And then verse 11, Jesus says, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know "'and bear witness to what we've seen, "'but you do not receive our testimony.'" So Jesus and the prophets, they know God's plan. It's been revealed to them. They have eyes to see what God's plan is. They're eyewitnesses. They have reliable testimony, faithful testimony, And they're telling Nicodemus, this is what God is saying, how he will save those who are his people. And Jesus says the second charge against him, you're not receiving the eyewitness testimony that we're bringing to you. We know what we're talking about. He's not understanding and he's not receiving. Then in verse 12, he says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So the the earthly things that Jesus has told him is this new birth that happens on earth. And Nicodemus is asking about something beyond that, the whole plan of salvation. And Jesus says, you're not understanding the first step. How is it possible? How could you possibly believe if I explained it all to you? The third charge we see here is that he's not believing what Jesus said. So he didn't understand, he's not receiving what Jesus said, and he's not believing what Jesus said. So we see Jesus then follows up in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Jesus is telling Nicodemus his testimony is reliable. I'm the one who's come down from heaven. No one's taken a peek into heaven to see God's plan other than the man that's come down from heaven, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Yet, Nicodemus is still not receiving and not believing. Jesus was there when the plan was made. And he's telling Nicodemus, salvation had to be from above. Heaven had to come down. But that's the very thing that Nicodemus is having trouble accepting. Nicodemus is an interesting character because he could perhaps be compared to someone in a reformed church. He's a member of the covenant community as are we, and he probably had a mind for theology, as the Reformed are notorious for, and he probably had good doctrine. The Pharisees, Jesus said, do as they say, but not as they do. The Pharisees, you know, they had doctrine, they loved theology, they probably knew their scriptures really well too. Nicodemus may have even had most of the Old Testament memorized. So as we think of the Reformed, We know the scriptures well. We love theology. We are part of the covenant community. But that doesn't really matter if you don't believe and receive Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what church you're in. It doesn't matter what you've done for the church, how much of the Bible you have memorized. What you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you and we're saved by faith, not by pedigree or anything we've done. This is a comfort to those who don't believe because nothing that you've done, if you don't believe tonight, nothing you've done can disqualify you from the kingdom. And it's also a comfort for those who do believe because as we're bogged down by sin in this life, we're not judged by God based on what we've done. We aren't justified by our works, but it's by our faith. So that can be our comfort as we think, do I have eternal life tonight? The question to ask yourself is, do I believe? Not, what have I done? That's, I think, part of what Jesus is making clear here. Think, do I believe? And the scriptures say, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you do have eternal life. Calvin really wants to make clear that we attribute nothing to our works in salvation, but he says, such is the wicked ambition which belongs to our nature that when the question relates to the origin of salvation, we quickly form diabolical imaginations about our own merits. I think that's such a good word. It's diabolical to think that we can offer anything toward our salvation. Salvation had to be from above. Every other religion in the world wants to tell you that you need to earn your way into heaven. But our passage tonight and the whole scriptures make it so clear that it's faith. God's heavenly rescue plan, his plan for salvation, is heaven down, it's not from the earth up. God's plan depends on faith so that none of us can boast. And in verses 14 and 15, we see that God's purpose in salvation, his purpose in this rescue plan is eternal life for all who believe. That's a a big point tonight, that the end goal of this rescue mission is eternal life for all who believe. Let's read verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus in a way that the teacher of Israel should understand. He's explaining this plan of salvation and saying, it's like Moses and the bronze serpent. And Nicodemus would immediately know what that means from being a Jew, but it's from the passage Numbers 21, and I'll give us a refresher tonight. Israel was complaining against God and Moses. They were complaining even that they were rescued out of Egypt and complaining about the very bread that God was giving them to live. God, seeing their sin, sends a just judgment. He sends venomous serpents into the camp. And many Israelites are bitten and many die. They cry out to Moses and they recognize their sin. Moses prays to God and God gives a gracious remedy, an antidote for the venom that's killing them. He tells Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole, and the scriptures say, "'Everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live.'" Jesus is telling us in verses 14 and 15 to compare these two stories. He's saying the story of Israel in the wilderness is a type or a representation of God's salvation that can be compared to the ultimate reality of God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. He's saying that this is a foreshadowing that points forward to God's ultimate plan of salvation. So let's compare them right now. And as soon as we look at Israel's predicament and the real predicament of mankind, we see that our situation is so much more dire. Israel is facing physical death. They have venom that will kill them and end their time on this earth. But in reality, all of mankind has been bitten by the serpent in the garden. And we face just judgment and condemnation for our sins, which means eternal death, eternal torment, day and night. God's wrath is upon sin. And then if we think about how much more dire our situation is, when we compare it to a snake bite, I mean, today, if you're bitten by a snake and you get to the hospital on time, you probably wouldn't even lose your foot. The reality is, in a few days, you'd probably be back to your normal health. But the reality of judgment against sin, no human ingenuity, no cunning, no modern medicine, nothing we could do could ever free us from the wrath coming upon us because of the sins that we have and that we've committed. Nothing that we could do could ever free us from this. But God, in his great mercy and love, gave his only son, that we might be cleansed by his blood. As we think about how much we need this savior, we realize that it could never be us. Salvation had to be from above. And that also, it's a gracious remedy, because God did not have to send his son. He did not need to free us from sin, because his judgment is just. So it's gracious in that we don't deserve it. Just like the Israelites didn't deserve the antidote, neither do we. But the life offered to the Israelites, we see everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. They're offered longer life in the land. The reality of God's plan of salvation in Christ is that we're offered eternal life. That doesn't mean just a rich life here on earth or an easy life or a happy life here on earth, but we're offered something so much greater, eternal life, united to Jesus Christ, in the new heavens and new earth, true life, free from sin, lived to its fullest for as many days as there could be. Eternity, something we can't hardly even picture. I think of the song Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright and shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. This eternity and eternal life is something we can hardly even picture because it's such a good thing that with our experience here on this earth, it's almost out of our conceptual grasp. And dear Christians, this future, this glory that we look forward to is our hope in this life. We're pilgrims in this land and as we make our way towards the heavenly Jerusalem, Keep your eyes fixed on eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's what we're pressing on towards. That's what helps us to keep going. As we pray for the Holy Spirit to make our lives easy here on this earth, as we suffer from sin and all the things, all the toil in this life, we look forward to eternal life in Jesus Christ. This eternal life and enjoying God forever is what's offered in Jesus Christ. And we have to ask the question, why would God be so merciful and gracious to offer this antidote to us? That's what is told to us here in verse 16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God has shown his love to the world by sending his only son. And this amazing love is hard for us to comprehend. D.A. Carson says that God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big or there's so many people in the world. God's love is to be admired because the world is so bad. Because we are so wicked, that's why it's amazing that God loved us in the first place. I think of Romans chapter five, verses eight and 10, great love is extended even to his enemies to the point that he would even send his own son that's where the character of this love is really seen is that it's at great cost to god to send his son and at great cost to jesus the son to go and die for a sinful evil people that hate god and hate jesus christ my wife's pregnant right now with our first son and I already love this little baby that I've never seen. I've never looked at him face to face, I've never held him, I've only felt him kick, but I already love him so much and I can't imagine giving him up for any reason, to anyone, for any reason. How much more so for the parents out there that have known their children for a long time and have raised them and have grown to love them even more? And how much more so for God who is in eternal union with his son, knowing each other perfectly, loving each other perfectly for all time and before time. This love is hard for us to even understand. Yet out of that perfect love, God still sent his son to his enemies to die, to knowingly die. God sent his son and part of the plan is his son dying. Yet he still showed us this great love to us, his enemies. I think it's supposed to be incomprehensible for us to think about this. As we think of love, we learn here that love is costly. Love isn't just goodwill or warm and fuzzy feelings towards someone. That's kind of the romantic or cultural notion of love that we get. But in the scriptures, we see love is a costly thing. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus willingly went. God sends him at great cost to himself. Jesus with the greatest love he could show lays down his life for his friends who were his enemies. So he's counting us as friends. God is looking and seeing that he will redeem us and make us his children and he will be our God. This great love is incomprehensible. And that's what motivated God to send this rescue mission. The latter half of verse 16, the purpose is restated again. We see here that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This time, the purpose also has in view, remember, you're perishing. Sin and wrath for sin is upon you. But the purpose of God's plan is to give eternal life to all those who'd believe. And he sent his son to accomplish that. If you look at verse 17, we see that this is made clear that this is a rescue mission. He says, "'For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him.'" So it's not a mission to condemn, but he wants to save the world. And then we see in the rest of this passage, two ways we can respond to this plan of salvation. How do people respond to this rescue mission? If we look at verse 18, we see whoever believes in him is not condemned. What beautiful good news. I think of Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Great news. But then the rest of verse 18. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You may think, Didn't we just say Jesus wasn't sent on a mission to condemn, but to save? Yes, but think about it like this. If the Coast Guard was sent out to save some drowning sailors, and they give them a life raft, and those drowning sailors reject the life raft, and there's no one else coming to save them, they're not drowned yet, but they're as good as drowned. And the Coast Guard wasn't sent on a drowning mission. But those people, by rejecting the only way of salvation offered to them, they have basically drowned themselves already. That's what we're seeing here. In verse 36 of chapter 3, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So that's what we're seeing here those who reject the name of the only Son of God, the judgment has, a, has not come upon them yet. But if you're rejecting the only way of escape, the only rescue mission, then you're as good as damned. The condemnation might as well already be upon you and the gavel already banged because you've rejected the only way to be cleansed of your sin. And that's what we see here in, in verse 19. This is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Does that make you recall the story from the beginning, right? The venom is in your veins and you're dying. You're perishing. You're on the brink of death and your rescuer is here and the light is shining down upon you. The light will expose your sin, but it's also the only way to have life. Now, will you roll away into the darkness and die or accept the antidote and be rescued? John, the author here, is putting these two choices before us and asking us for a response. What will you choose? For those who have been given eyes to see, we see that their response in verse 21, the, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those of us who's had this birth from above and can see Jesus Christ as good news, if we see him as a rescuer, we can, by God's grace, admit our sin and come to the cross knowing that we have nothing good of ourselves and that any good in us has been worked by God. The other response is to reject Jesus, see him as bad news, one who will expose your sin, tell you what you've done is wrong. And if you'd rather hold on to your sin than be given life, then you'll die in darkness. But remember this key word in verses 15 and 16 whoever, whosoever it is, the one who believes, whoever that is will be given eternal life. There's not one group of people, there's not one race, there's not one occupation, there's all nations, all kinds of people. God is redeeming all kinds of people from the world. Even people who've rejected God at first. Think of Nicodemus. He's come to Jesus in the dark, he didn't understand, he did not receive, he did not believe. He's pictured as a Pharisee and on the Sanhedrin, and he's pictured as an enemy of Jesus, someone who did not believe at first. But later on, he's identified with Jesus. He's called a Galilean. And then at the cross, when he sees Jesus on the cross, he's one of the guys that buries Jesus. So we see even someone who's rejected Jesus up front could be redeemed. Today is the day of salvation this rescue mission from God is still in effect. You can still come to Jesus and believe today. Don't die in the darkness, but come to the light. He who has eyes to see, let him see. Let's pray together. Lord God, would you please apply this truth to our lives? Lord, those of us who do believe, we ask, Lord, that We would always remember that it's by faith, Lord. Nothing we've done to earn your favor. Nothing good within us. Lord, we are but sinful men in desperate need of a Savior. We thank you for sending your beautiful son, Jesus Christ, in your perfect love, Lord, to cleanse us of sin. We ask for anyone who does not believe that they would have eyes to see tonight, Lord, and see the goodness of your plan and see Jesus Christ as a beautiful rescuer, Lord, and we ask that you would redeem that person. Lord, we trust in you because you have first loved us, Lord. That's why we can love you. Please apply these truths to us tonight, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.